Nerdville. Today, we're in a different location. I'm in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm honored to have my very special guest and friend, Mr. Eddie Trunk. Thank you, Eddie, for doing this. Joe, I'm honored, and, and I thank you for asking me. It's, um, it's always fun, and I've had these experiences a few times where the, the table, it's role reversal for a second, you know? Um, right. My whole career interviewing people like you and so many others, it's kind of cool to see the tables turn, so thank you. It means a lot. Yeah. I call I call this series, and um, I have about four or five different journalists who I love and respect, and I call this the Hunter Becomes the Hunted series, you know? <laughs> uh, thanks I for, love it. How are you doing? Are you, are you broadcasting from your house, or are you uh, broadcasting from the studio at Sirius or at uh, uh, Q104? Well, actually, at the time we're doing this, I'm actually on vacation this week, so I'm not broadcasting at all. Nice. Um, but it's a little weird because vacation normally – you want to go somewhere, you know, out of the norm, but obviously can't really do that right now. So my vacation is really just not having to go to the microphone each day and do a show or prepare for a show. So I'm actually, um, at the moment, I have a, uh, the little uh, vacation house with my family at the Jersey Shore. I grew up coming to the Jersey Shore as a kid. A few years ago, I bought a little place down here. And the last couple of years, the first couple of years since I've owned it, I haven't had an opportunity to be here very much because I'm on the road quite a bit myself in the last few years. But since there's nothing going on, um, I've been I've been pretty much anchored here. And because of the beauty of the Internet, I'm able to do my broadcast stuff from anywhere. And as long as I got an Internet connection. So normally the answer would be, yeah, I'd be broadcasting and doing my show from here where I'm sitting right now. But this week I got the week off. Great. Well, congratulations. You are you are a workaholic just like myself, you know, like, yeah, I like to stay busy. Yeah, it's 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 a shock to the system. You know, I mean, you know, people around me have said, like, I needed to take a year off um, for years. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll get I'll get to it eventually. And then March 12th, I was like, OK, I guess we're off for the rest of the year, you know, but it's it, it's it's been fun to kind of just take a deep breath and 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 stop for a minute yeah uh, I, I agree with that you know it's it's funny because you know and look it's all relative to your situation if you're somebody who lives in a one-bedroom apartment by themselves and you're out of work i understand this could be extremely difficult uh, i'm lucky enough i've got two homes i can go back and forth i've still even though i've taken a lot of hits i still have my main gig so i'm okay so it's i think it's all very relative to to how you're you know your situation. And for me, I'm, I've actually enjoyed the time to kind of be around the family a little bit and to be able to, you know, recharge while still working. So it's been, it's been okay. It's, I'm in a much better spot than, than most people. And the workaholic thing to me, you know, you, you yourself put yourself in that category. I think it's very much tied to what I've done and what you do in your career. We put so much work to get to this point Yes. But you don't ever want to let up on the rope a little bit, you know? <laughs> yeah, the hard work starts when you actually it actually gets traction and you start and you, and yeah. you start getting um, you know, you start achieving what you set out to do. I have a question for you. And most of the times I'm interviewing musicians. And what fascinates me about musicians and people who love music as deeply as as we all do, yourself included, there's always a moment of revelation where the bug catches you you know and you grew up in new jersey what was the first record you played that you said not only do i like this music but i also want to get involved in the music industry and in broadcasting and then and just 
you know, become because you're one of those musicologist types. You know, the studio was recorded at the the players, the engineer, you know, who brought the coffee in, you know. I read the thank yous. <laughs> right, right. You know, you research right. people they 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 thanked. Like, what was that moment for you as a kid getting into music? Going, man, I I don't know why I'm so enthralled with it. I just want to be involved in it. Well. There's a couple things here. So the moment that I had the whole Goosebumps first exposure to proper rock music, I remember vividly because I was about 10 years old. And up to that point, I had listened to a lot of like, you know, Partridge Family and stuff I was watching on TV as a little kid. Uh, But I was in the backseat of my parents' car. We were going somewhere in the AM radio out of New York City, was on in the car, and they played a song, and ironically, I'm wearing their T-shirt right now, I don't think you can see it, the Raspberries, Right. but uh, a a, a song called Go All the Way by the Raspberries, and it's a total power pop, but it has very distorted guitars that open the song, and then it goes into this beautiful melody, and then back into the distorted guitars, and when I heard that, I was like, my mind was blown, I was like instantly consumed with that band, that at 10... I said to my parents, you got to take me to the record store. I need to get all the records by this band. And then, so that that last, and I still love that band to this day, but that lasted for like a year or two. In, and then the next big game changer was when I walked home from junior high school and my friend said to me, I'm, we're going to go into the record store. I'm going to get the new record by this band called Kiss. And I was like, who's Kiss? Right. He said, come in and let me show you. And the new record at the time was Rock and Roll Over. But he said, you know, you should get Destroyer because I, I know that's great. This is the new one. I don't know how it is. Bought Destroyer, went home, dropped the needle, first song, Detroit Rock City, stared at the cover, and game over. And for the next couple years, nothing even, like any band that wasn't Kiss was a threat to Kiss. It was one of those things. Right. Like every inch of th- anything on my wall in my bedroom, Kiss pictures, every, you couldn't even see paint. So it was, you know, and it's a common story. A lot of people, of course, shared that with that band. So that was really it. And then to to more specifically answer your question, though, where the moment came where I said I want to do something in music for a living was that it, the, the idea of my love of music was so encompassing at such an early age. But here was the part about it. I was made fun of for it. Like the bands I liked when I was in high school were completely out, like not cool at all to be liking. I graduated high school in 82. Mm. So that means I'm, I'm for, for KISS fans out there, you know 79 to 82, bad years to be a KISS fan. Like made fun of, kitty band, marginalized, a joke. Where if I wasn't 6'2", I would have my ass beaten daily for wearing a KISS shirt. I'm not even exaggerating. So, right. I, and I was defiant about it. Like to this day... I have no problem telling people and sharing what I like. I don't believe in guilty pleasures. If you like it, that's all that should matter. So I was defiant about it. And that set me in my mind to say, you know what? All this music and these bands I love, I'm going to set out to do everything I can to help promote them in a, in a, um, in the proper way and in a way that's respectful of them. And that was my mission. It was like, not just Kiss, but then all the other bands. How can I share and spread the word about stuff that I think is valid and good with others? 
And right. that's where it all started. You know, I use the I always use the analogy. It's like when people make fun of you for liking a band, and and you know, one of the commonly asked questions the journalists ask me is like, like, give me give me an artist that that normally nobody would guess that you're into. And I said, that's easy. I am the biggest Bruce Hornsby fan in the world. I have all his records. I've been an admirer of his since the '80s. And one of the things is, and I, you know, you say to yourself, you know. When you watch those infomercials, you know infomercials with like Zamfir and sold millions of records, somebody likes it. And having someone go out there and find the fans now, like now with the internet, it's a lot easier. But back in the early '80s, to launch a national campaign, let alone an international campaign, cost millions of dollars if you were to be if they were a record company was trying to break a band. So you know the fact that you were taking bands that you were passionate about. And and going out there and, and spreading the word, that's that that that's great. I mean, what did that entail? Was it like hanging flyers, promoting shows, oh. you know, work, you know, go, hey man, you know, play this record on your show, you know, that kind of thing? It was well, I didn't have a show at the time. I had nothing at the time. So when this when this all hit me, I'm in high school and you know, I don't go to the prom, I'm not invited to the parties, I'm not in with the cool kids, but I was just defiant about what I loved. And I'm going to share the, I'm going to get the word out. So the very first thing I did was write the music column of my high school newspaper. Right. And I started doing that. And then my hometown in New Jersey has three colleges in it. And one of them, a college called Drew University, came to this high school in this, uh, between the junior and senior year. And they said, hey, we have a small radio station on campus. Would anybody here be interested in learning radio we want to keep it on the air in the summer when the college kids go away uh so i said i raised my hand i went over there and that's where i queued up my first record and experienced radio but it lasted only a couple weeks because kids started partying in there and they shut the program down right but all of a sudden i was quickly realizing like okay even though these were tiny little platforms i was writing about bands that i loved had the the writing gig um I got my toe in the water with radio and I would, I got a job right out of high school working at a record store, which at that time, Joe was like, I'm set for life. Like there was no bigger dream job than working at a right. record store. Absolutely. The store I grew, the store I would buy records from myself. So that was like paradise to me. And I'm like, I'm set. This is all I'm doing. Forget college, forget everything. And that's, that was like the path. So here I am, I'm selling records uh, to people because I quickly became known as the guy that if you were a hard rock fan, the manager would point to me and the customer would come right over. Hey, what what should I buy this week? Well, I suggest this. I suggest that. And then I was writing about these bands. I picked up other writing gigs along the way. And um, so I'm selling them. I'm writing about them. And then the manager of this record store, he was really into radio. And he had a bootleg, a, a pirate radio station in his basement in Staten Island. Right. And his whole trip was, he was in the radio for a different reason than I was. I was never in the radio because I tried to get rich or famous or I thought I had a great voice or anything. It was just another catalyst to share music with a wider audience. Right. So he said to me, come to my house in Staten Island. I got something to show you. And I went there, and he had this station, uh, this radio console under a bed sheet. Right. And he goes, we only turn it on on weekends, because you could get busted by the FCC. It's a, it's, yeah, a, yeah. it's a violation. 
And he goes, turn it on on weekends, and we just mess around and have some fun. And these are this is way before cell phones, so we give the request line to the payphone down the street. We'd have somebody in the payphone. They'd answer, hang up, call us, tell us what the request was. Right. And I made my first demo cha- demo tape for radio that way. And then my local rock station in New Jersey, uh, that's still on the air, WDHA, they... Uh, the owners of that station were coming in the record store. And this was around 83. And I was like, hey, there's a ton of music you're not playing that you should be, that we're selling. And you, I said, you should let me on the air for, and do a metal show or a hard rock show. And they're like, get out of here. You're crazy. Who are you? are just a kid. And I go, wait, I got a tape. And I had the tape from the bootleg pirate radio station. Okay. Great. And they heard it. And they said, we'll give you a shot. And then the record store said they'd sponsor it. So that got the show on the air. And through that, I was the first guy, one of the first people to ever play this unknown band called Metallica. And the guy who signed Metallica, Johnny Z, because of that said, if I can ever break this band, I'm going to give you a job working at my label. Three years later, 86, he comes to me. Good news, bad news. I said, what? He goes, well, obviously Metallica broke, and I'm going to give you a job. Like I said, great. What's the bad news? You won't be working with Metallica because they're leaving to go to Electra. Okay. And the, so so that's a long answer, but it's all very connected. Like, I built those blocks, and one thing fed into another. So I was, at one point in my life, in a position where I was signing bands so I could, if I found unsigned bands, I could actually sign them because I was an A&R guy. I still kept doing radio. I could actually play the bands. I still worked part-time in the record store. I could sell the bands. Right. And I still wrote about the bands. So I was like a one-man wrecking crew for bands that I loved. So what, what gap in the marketplace did you see? What bands were hot at the record store that WDHA by the way, great station. I've I've done shows for them and a legendary New Jersey, you know, FM rock station. What was the gap in the marketplace that you saw? Like, hey, listen, people with no airplay, people are coming in requesting these records and 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 buying them. What what kind of ba- you know? Name a few bands that you you saw the gap that the, the 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 mainstream rock station wasn't playing at the time. Well, again, remember at that time I was young and I was very much a metalhead and. What would be considered metalhead now, which would be considered metalhead then, not nearly so metalhead now, because now the stuff I'm going to tell you about is obviously very mainstream, but you got to go time and place, 82, 83, this stuff wasn't getting touched. And it was stuff like Quiet Riot, who at that point had a couple Japanese releases with Randy Rhodes on guitar that weren't out in America. We were selling them as imports. I'm like... This band, this people freaking out, freaking out about this guitar player. Um, I remember the Steeler record, which was the first thing Ingve Malmsteen played on. Right. People were freaking over it. It was an import or as an indie record. I'm like, this guy and this this guitar player in this band, everyone's talking about, and they're like, we don't know what this is. But then stuff that went on to become very big. Honestly, something like Def Leppard, believe it or not. Wow. Uh, before they broke, um, Metallica obviously uh with kill them all before they broke they were looking at me like what are you talking about i'm like i'm telling you there's a scene something's happening um you know motley Crue's first record stuff like that 
And then they finally said, okay, well, we're really not playing that stuff right now. We'll give you a shot to play it. And they, they gave me this show on Friday nights, uh, which in a long sort of way that I started in 83, the, my, my FM syndicated show is an extension of that show. And everything I've done in my career, TV, radio, whatever, has all in some way traces back to this little three-hour-a-week show that I started because it was different to what anyone else was doing at the time. Yeah, and, and it's, you know, you were a tastemaker, you know, and one of the things that I always find is, like, great movements in music, has to, they all have to start somewhere. You know, I mean, you talk about, you know, Johnny Z. I mean, he started that, that, that label Megaforce Records, right. which you work for. And, you know, some of the bands around that, that, um, that label, you know, Man of War, um, you know, King's X came from that. Um, and I just interviewed Scott Ian from Anthrax. And he was telling me about this whole scene. And it, just, it was just coming out of New Jersey and New York. And, and it was like this, this whole hard rock, heavy metal movement that that mainstream radio wasn't touching but then all of a sudden you know once they radio seems to be like that on a mainstream level they like like they wait for it to break and then they take credit for it you know exactly. and there's always there's always a protagonist like in this case in the northeast it was you going hey listen let me just spin it and if nobody calls in nobody you know the phones tell you the whole story but then it explodes you know metallica explodes and then be, they become mainstream you know knocking out the the bands that were on the you know on the radio before tell me what it was like in the in the early 80s working for a record company because you know you get there's those great stories i started hanging around the music business around 1989 and it was still the the old boys club of the cigars and the and the and the and the expense accounts and 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 stuff that looked like powdered sugar that wasn't powdered you know i mean it was it was every cliche that you ever wanted to 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 see not maybe as a 12 year old but 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 generally <laughs> What was the culture like? You know, was it was it fast and furious? Were you going out every night to, you know, clubs in New York looking to seek out bands or were you waiting to hear about something breaking and, and then and then seeking that out? Well, the answer for me for that would be probably very different to somebody that you would ask who worked for a major label right. at that time. Because Megaforce, when I first got that job, Johnny called me in 86. Um there were no employees. <laughs> you know? right, it was right. him and his wife and his housekeeper who was working the phones um, and a woman named Metal Maria who was doing publicity for him. And that was it. And they were working from his house in Old right. Bridge, New Jersey. So right. here I am getting a call saying you've got this gig. And, you know, I would have been 22, I guess, at that point. And, right. OK, here's the address to the office. And I drive to the office thinking I'm going to go to this, you know, this unbelievable, you know, this cool tower or something. And I, I'm in a residential area and with, a, with houses. And I look around and I'm like, I guess we're going to have a coffee or something at his house before we go to the office. And I ring the doorbell and his wife answers and I go in and she's like, oh, welcome here. Come, come on, pull up a, a spot in the living room. And I'm like, OK. When are and then I looked in the garage, had a couple desks in it. That was the office. So th there was, you know, we, and then what happened was shortly after that, we got a distribution deal with Atlantic and became part of Atlantic. And then, you know, and, and you mentioned Scott Ian. I mean, the Anthrax guys I'm extremely close with. We literally grew up together. And around that time, we were all kids coming up. 
yeah. through the same system, so to speak, them as musicians, them as what me is what I do. But, um, you know, I didn't, it's, it's interesting, Joe, because obviously the company grew in the time that I was there and we did get a proper office, but we were always in New Jersey. You know, we were always in the burbs. Atlantic was our distributor in the, in the city. I would go there maybe once a week for meetings. Um, you know, you, you, I'd listen to tapes, you know, that would come in through the mail. We, we'd look at the eight by tens. I mean, this is all pre-internet, pre-cell phone, whatever. Um, yeah, the, the, I didn't really see a lot of the craziness that went on in the business. There was a, a thing that went on. There were a couple of things that went on back then. There was a, something called the WIA convention, Warner Electric Atlantic convention. Those happened every year. Those were basically excuses for big parties. So a lot of crazy yeah. shit went on there. Right. And concrete marketing used to have a, a, a thing called the Foundations Forum that they did every year in L.A. So th th those were like big party spots. Bill McGaffey, the radio promoter, right. back then used to do a, a, a McGaffey party, which was. A, so there were these like two or three benchmark big like events where you'd see some of the excesses, if you will. Right. But I never saw it. And it's crazy being in this business now in nearly 40 years, thankfully, I never had a problem with any of that. Like, I, I never did drugs, um, never had a drinking problem, never any substances, nothing. It was all about, my, I was so hyper-focused about the music that I was almost ignorant to that stuff that even if it was going on in the room next to me, I wouldn't have recognized it because I just had no knowledge of it. I had no history with it. Right. One of the things I wanted to ask you um, about being a musicologist, you know, because I... I I, I regard you as one. I mean, because it's just you know. I mean, the the the, the famous uh, the famous bit on that metal show, you know, stumped the trunk. I mean, like some of those questions were like insanely hard, and you would get them. You know, I'd be mean, like, wow. You know, um, did you find like did you find sometimes like getting into if you really got into a band and really went down the the rabbit hole? Um, did you find some of it disappointing? Or did you find it, did you, and if you did, did it prevent you from going down other rabbit holes for other bands? Or were you just like, no, I just need to know, good, good or bad, I want to know what's going on, you know, you know who's, who's, who's involved in here, you know, who's, who's the A&R person, or, you know, the, the band's history and how they got started. Did you, ever, did you ever find that, like, disappointing sometimes? You're like, oh, well, that, that was, that's not what I thought it was, you know? You mean disappointing in the sense of like learning more about the bands and being turned off by something? Oh yeah, just like you, 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 you see the record, you idolize the music, and then sometimes you meet the people, or you, you, you find out like, oh, you know, like I found out one of my favorite live records was basically a crowd track and a and a and a and a, and a you know and, and a studio session. And I go, oh, that that that's a little disappointing. And then one of my favorite concerts of all time on DVD turned out to be the same thing. And I go, you know, I really wish I didn't know that. I get to sit back and enjoy, you know, because it, it, it really is just about the love of the music and the love of just about, you ever find anything out about like a band or a record? You go, oh God, I wish I didn't read that or find well, that. Well, you know, well, you know, um, being such a crazy Kiss fan most of my life, I, when I found out like uh, years later, like, you know, there's two studio records that Peter actually is credited on, but Anton Fig actually, your drummer actually plays right. on. Uh, there's uh, st the studio side of Kiss Alive 2, which is, um, you know, love those studio songs. Turned out that it was actually um, the late Bob Kulik and not Ace on three of those songs. Right. So that stuff as a kid was sort of traumatic. But then as I went on, I learned that 
you know, having some of these sort of ghost players was not all that uncommon. Like Aerosmith, who I love to death, uh, Get Your Wings, there's some tracks that Jack Douglas recently revealed that that's not Joe Perry. Train Kept a Rollin', which is one of their signature things on there, right. is not Joe Perry or, or Brad Woodford. Right. So th those sort of things, still to this day, I'm learning that stuff. And you, know, you kind of keep it in context. And the live album thing, what I've learned about live records, especially from the 70s, which is the classic era of the live record. Absolutely. It's, 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 it's actually more incredible when you find out the ones that actually are all live because right. the great majority of them are anything but. Right. So, you know, I still, so, so that's, that's the thing now is like doing that sort of like research and it's like, there's a statute of limitations on that where it's like for years, like they never, it was whispers about kiss alive. And now the band themselves or Eddie Kramer will tell you, yeah, the drums are live, but the applause we even took from another show, you know, and it's like, yeah, you're right. It doesn't lessen the fact that that was, and is a great record to me. Um, now, if we're t and 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 I and I hate all the doctor DVDs. I, I they make me nuts. Um, and my biggest peeve now, and this is a whole another storyline, but is by far one of my biggest things is what I call the epidemic of rock bands not playing live and running a ton of tracks, yes. vocals, guitars. It makes me nuts. It's it's so offensive to me as a music fan. And there's way too many bands doing it, and fans don't even know how many are. But it's rampant, and it's got to stop. I think I think it's a, one of the biggest problems we have with live music right now. I I I, I agree. I I'd rather see a concert where somebody makes a mistake, and like the singer is a little maybe you know five nights into the you know the the week, and it's like oh you know he's a little tired. But at least you know it's you know it's real. I mean, do you think do you think they should print it on the ticket? Like, um, this band is known to use track. It may not be a 100% live performance, but, but at least they'll be in the room dancing along. Yeah, you know, I, I've heard, because I've had this dialogue with a lot of people, and I, I don't think that's such an awful idea to put some sort of disclaimer. But right. here's, the, here's the sad part about it, Joe, and i got to say this. I don't know how many other fans would care. Like, it, it blows my mind like the sort of almost disposability of members of bands now where it, 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 you know, you go back to 20 years ago, 30 years ago, there's a lineup change in a band. It was a major deal. You know, people talked about it. If somebody couldn't play a show, the show got canceled. Now it's like, well, we got the tech we'll sit in tonight. It's like, you know, so yeah. you wonder like how much like how much how much other people would even be passionate about this. I certainly hope there would be. I, I hope that's a line that we just didn't blur out totally. But I, I just don't understand like the whole magic of a live show is. Did you what did, what happened the night you went? Did you have a good night? Was it an OK night? You know, right. all those variables are gone. Every night is literally the same if it's just somebody lip syncing or tracks or backing tracks or whatever. It's it's madness to me. And I'll give you an example. Uh, I just read Steve Gorman from the Black Crows book, yeah. which was incredible. The drummer from the Black Crows. Yeah. And he talked about touring with Aerosmith on the Pump Tour and how unbelievably upset and disappointed they were that they found out that they were flying in harmony vocals on on tracks back then. 
And that blew my mind because Aerosmith, I know for a fact now and for a very long time, is 100% real and live. Right. They've got a couple extra musicians doing it, which I have no problem with, but they're human beings. Right. So that, I, and I talked to Steve about that, and he's like, yeah, they, they knocked it off because we, we were calling them out about it. So it's like sometimes that's what it takes. And I saw Aerosmith on their residency um, early this year mm -hmm. in Vegas. And honestly, the show I saw wasn't great. They had, they, they, and at the end of the show, Steven Tyler says on mic, Man, Joe, that was a rough one, huh? And Joe goes, yeah. And Tyler says to the audience, but did everybody still have a great time? And the crowd went nuts. Yeah. And I did, because it was, if someone's off mic or whatever, that's the beauty of live, you know? Someone yeah. messes up the recovery process. That's what makes it fun. That's what makes it fun. And that's what makes it a live show. You know, yeah. I, I, I've, I've had experiences um and, you know, in hard rock festivals over in Europe, on a rare occasion, they'll, they'll book a blues rock guy. Um, and I always go, why am I here? Anyway, um, I've had experiences where, where, you know, I'm watching groups and as a guitar player, I'm seeing one guitar player and I'm hearing this, these massive amounts of guitar playing, you know, <laughs> and, and I'm like, and then you kind of poke around backstage and you see the, you see the computer, you know, I think it would get boring, you know, for the band to be locked to that time code all night long going, you know, because one of the things about the great things about live performance is the fact that it is all different and you can improvise and, and you don't get the yeah. true great nights unless you go for it. And sometimes you go for it and you flop on your face. And then sometimes there's those legendary, you know, who live at Leeds moments where it's captured and it's like, oh, my God, it's like this, this band on fire. Tell me in your mind. What makes a good broadcaster? What 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 um what's your criteria for broadcasting? Because I know, I mean, you know, having an opinion about something, I know in 2020 is a, is a little dicey, but but that's always been to me the the high watermark. If somebody if somebody has an opinion about something and sticks the landing, that to me is a great broadcaster, and you are that that guy for me. So tell me in your mind what makes a, a great a great broadcaster, journalist, you know, radio show host. Well, well, thank you for saying that, first of all. And I couldn't agree with you more that the uh, you, you couldn't be more spot on because in today's environment where we are in, in my humble opinion, a sickeningly hypersensitive world, right. sickeningly PC world, um, it's harder and harder to even have a differing opinion from the masses um, or to just say something that doesn't fly with the, you know, what everyone else is on board with. But I'll do that. I mean, look, there are, uh, I always say I'm not out to be everyone's friend. Okay. I've been doing this long enough that people know me and know what I'm about. And I'm sure, I, not I'm sure, I mean, I know for a fact, there are people that are going to say they don't like me, whether they're artists or they are fans. The fans who say they don't like me, it's an interesting thing because they can tell you every single thing I say on the radio every single day. So they don't like, they don't like me, but they're listening every day. The art, any artists out there, and there are a couple that, um, unfortunately, who I am huge fans of who don't like me is because I called it like I see it and I give my opinion. So I grew up 
with listening to, and the influences on me as a broadcaster was anybody that had a strong opinion and a strong position and wasn't afraid to say it. Right. And that to me was compelling. All the people who every record was the greatest record they ever heard, every guitar player is the greatest guitarist, every drummer, everyone's brilliant, everyone's incredible, boring, you just, you know it's disingenuous. You know somebody can't feel that way about every possible thing. But they're toeing the line because they want to be everybody's buddy and they want to get everybody, get them on the guest list and tickets and whatever. And there's more of that going on now than there's ever been because literally anyone can broadcast. And if you've got a podcast or a YouTube or something, everyone wants to try to get, you know, you to do their thing. And, and there's more of it than ever. So I grew up listening to and respecting broadcasters with strong opinions. Howard Stern was huge for me as a kid. Right. Um, in New York City, we had a sports talk show called Mike and the Mad Dog, right. where those guys would just go off about praise or destroy on a daily basis a player or a team and saw it as they saw it. Um, you know, politically, I'll, I'll watch Bill Maher's show on HBO and I'll watch Tucker Carlson. I DVR them both I, and I'll watch them both. They're out here politically, but they both have the, the stones to say what they feel. And right. I love that about people. Even if I don't agree with all their positions, I love the fact that people are willing to take up a position and defend it and debate it. You know, that's what I always tell my audience. I'm like, I'm not the be all end all. This is how I feel. You want to counter it? Let's go. That's the beauty of doing a live radio show. Let's have a two way street. And that's a conversation. That's, a, that's the yeah. definition of a conversation. Do you think in 2020, a young Howard Stern and a young Eddie Trunk completely starting off now gets a job in radio? using the same playbook as you've used for almost 35 years. A job, think, in, a job in radio? Meaning, meaning like, a, like, you know, uh, is, it, is it too edgy, too opinionated, you know, and, and, and like you said, everything has got to be great. Just watch, like, Access Hollywood, and, like, you mean to tell me Avenger 6 is the greatest movie ever made? It's not. Yeah, it's just not. I'm sorry. Please right. stop saying that. Yeah. You, you, right. I have to turn the channel. You know, do you think that the culture now in broadcasting – prevents the future great broadcasters from really, you know, becoming great where they have to, they have to just mellow it out. You know, everything is awesome and you're really not saying much, you know, because your opinions can't, you can't, you can't say anything bad about something or something that you disagree with. You can't call it out. Do you think that? Um, okay. So what I do, even to this day in the big picture to me is not, at all controversial. I, I just, no. I'm just having an opinion and it's sad that having an opinion <laughs> is viewed as controversial, but it is, you know, uh, so whether it be social media, whether it be on the radio, what have you, uh, ha the old Howard Stern, because Howard's very different now than he used yeah. to be. He'll, yeah. he'll tell you that himself. The old Howard Stern trying to start out now probably wouldn't get a radio gig, but that's where the beauty of podcasting comes in. Because if he, there are a lot of people that are doing very edgy stuff, most of it in the political space, but right. through podcasts. Or if you look yeah. at a guy like Joe Rogan, yeah. who just got a hundred million from Spotify because for his right. podcast, right? Uh, you know, so so there are other, you know, 
paths if you can be if you can find a way to strike that balance. And and obviously there are people that and, and a lot of it's in the political space where you know they're very uh, very opinionated one side or the other side and they they get great audiences for it. So I tell people all the time when it comes to podcasts, it's like because a lot of people ask me, well, how do we get more listeners? How do we get more followers if we do a podcast? They say, I say to people all the time, the good news is anyone can do a podcast. The right. bad news is anyone can do a podcast. <laughs> right, right. So, you know, so if you can find a way to be creative, I mean, look, somebody like you obviously already have a built-in great, huge audience that, right. that's coming to you because right. you're Joe Bonamassa, the guitar player. But I'm talking about the kid in his bedroom that has no notoriety. You know, they tell me all the time, how do I get more than 10 people listening to my podcast or my stream or whatever? Yeah. And that's the problem. You're up against this flooded world where it's trying to stand out. And, you know, now it's like, you know, I, I, I know for a fact I, I went into a guitar center in New York City for the first time in four months. I needed a cable and I was just kind of poking around and, and looking around. And what I noticed on full display right in the front, make your own podcast kits. Yeah. So, and you're going, wow, it is now, we are, we are in a sea of content, you know? Do you think having access to all of the content is a good thing or does it, does it kind of get just, just washed out in just this clutter of, of, of broadcasting? Because, because nobody can really consume all of that unless you're just one of those, those recluses sit in your basement all day long, you know, morning, noon and night and just, just listen to it all. Even, even some of the great podcasts are two hours long, you know? Yeah. And and it's it's a real it's a real commitment to the listener, you know. Do you do you think that that dilutes the the the, the broadcasting world having that much content out there right now at uh, literally a click? Yeah, I really do actually. I think I think that the podcast world. Be, look, look, I mean, I would never begrudge the way I started and my path was very very different than the path someone would try to take now to get into broadcasting because. Yeah the path I took really doesn't exist anymore. Like you can't even go to a radio station and start on the overnight, which was the normal thing because now overnights are recorded. They're not even live. So they don't have that, that job isn't there anymore. So there, that is the plus side of this world where literally anybody can broadcast. But I do think that it is tremendously diluted. Um, I think that also the, 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 the thing here, here's one of the things I see happening, too, is, like, we all know how this business works. And if you hire an independent publicist to work your project, if you're an artist, that publicist wants to, each day, because you're paying them, submit to that artist a sheet of calls to make to do interviews yes. to make it look like they're doing their job and how much they're doing for you. But I'll see those lists sometimes, and I'll look at them, I'll be like, Okay, it's one thing to stack up 50 calls in a day, but did anybody vet out these and actually see if these people have any audience? Or maybe right. actually listening to what they're doing? Or is yes. this just an exercise to make it like, so you look like you did your job? So, you know, I've released a couple books and, and I've, you know, when I've done TV shows that will ask me to do some PR. And I'm, you know, look, I'm nobody, but I'll say to the publicist, I'll talk to whoever you want me to talk to. As, but but make sure it's something that has got some reach. Like, did you do some homework to find out 
Is it behind a paywall? Is it free to everybody? What are the numbers on it? Right. And, um, you know, let me at least spend my time doing stuff that that is going to at least have some reach. And that being said, the last thing I'll say about this, though, because this is important, too. That doesn't mean the kid who's got 10 people listening to his podcast in his bedroom that every once in a while, when I've got the free time, I won't say, sure, I'll talk to him. Because, because somebody's got, everybody needs that break. Yes, but you exactly. can't do fifty. You can't do forty-nine out of fifty right. of those in a day. So it's I, very diluted. I remember saying the words out loud to a publicist of mine in Europe because they would load me up between six and seven o'clock at night on show days, and and it was one of those things. It was ten calls or seven cals, and I started looking at it. It's like bluesblog dot, you know, <laughs> fr dot org, and I literally, I literally did it all. It was, Tried to be as nice and, you know, and I called the publicist. My last call of the day was the, I called the publicist. I go, you realize that you, I just spent an hour before a show where I really could be focusing my energy on the gig. I literally could have rented a car and a megaphone and drove around the town and reached more people than I did in this last hour doing doing 15 minutes. Right. You know, and it's it, it, it is it is it is a hard thing to as, as a as a personality to 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 navigate through that tell me how you got into television did you did you approach vh1 or did they approach you uh they approached me my my uh so again going back to that metal fm show back in the day uh was making a lot of noise and then it moved into new york city and i started doing it on q104 and then wnew which was a legendary station and then that went off the air, and then went back to Q104, and that show still exists. The New York affiliate for that is is still Q104, and it's on like 30 other cities. But back around uh, 2002, uh, I have an old friend named Rick Krim, who was in music and talent at VH1 and MTV. Mm -hmm. And he knew what I was doing, and he knew that I was like a big rock nerd and all that. And he called me one day, and he said, hey, we've got this channel called vh1 classic and i had not even heard of that channel and he said uh he said we're auditioning people to be vj's interviewer interviewers and i want to know if you want to come down and audition right. and i was like yeah of course and uh it sounds crazy joe because clearly i don't look like brad pitt or anything but right. i always i always felt like i could do tv i always was I, i'm not always that confident about things but i knew if i got the crack i could do it yeah and uh I said, yeah, I'd like to audition. And I went through a lengthy audition process to be a, a VJ uh, for this upstart channel. It, it had been on the air like a year at that time. And, you know, it was a lot of callbacks and it was all doing scripts without a teleprompter and all genres of music. It was, yeah. it was everything. It was not just rock. And, they would put me on a stool and they'd fire stuff at me and just go and thinking on your feet. And I went through about a six month callback thing to the point they finally hired me as one of their hosts. Wow. So that was the start of it. And I'll tell you, this is pre that metal show. And I worked for four years in that capacity while still doing radio. And I loved it, but it was really difficult because we were on a shoestring budget. 
they refused to let me use a prompter, so I had to memorize oh stacks God. of scripts every weekend. It was mm -hmm. mind-blowing. They made me, they controlled to some degree what I said, what I wore, how I looked. It was yeah. very controlling. But, hey, I had a TV gig, and I was, I Joe, I interviewed everybody, and all of this aired from Ringo Starr to, I mean, Robert Plant in England twice to Black Sabbath in Birmingham. Like, I went all over the world. It bums me out more people didn't see it because it was still, the channel was still growing at the time. Yeah. But it was, it, we did amazing stuff there. And then um, they blew the whole channel up in 06. Mm -hmm. And they went without hosts for a couple of years. And the whole time I was there initially, I kept telling them, guys, turn me loose. Let me be me. Let me say what I want to say. Unscript me. Let me throw on a T-shirt. Let me just be me. Right. And they said, no, no, no. And finally, they called and they said, let's talk about what ideas you have about bringing you back. And that's, you know, the very abbreviated version of how that metal show was born. So what people don't know, because most people know me from that metal show, is for four years prior, I was a host on the channel, which right. is how the whole show started. Right. You know, I think um, when, I, when I look at the last 20 years, to me, there's four great music programs that have been on, on, on television. Austin City Limits has been on since the, the 70s. Obviously, it's been 40 plus years. Sessions at Studio 54th. I used to love that show. It was a, they had a great lineup. It was a great, great way of presenting it. Uh, later with Jules Holland still on the air, my friend Jules, and that metal show. You know, Thank you. And, and, and it, to me, those are the great shows because if, if you were a casual fan or if you were the anorak, you could get into that metal show because it was just three guys and a guest and, and a guest musician passionately talking about things that we love. Now, if you're tuning into that metal show and you don't like music or hard rock, this isn't the channel for you, you know? But when you guys got into it, it was a fantastic exchange of, of, of you know, the, the best of lists are great, you know, like, and, and it was just, you know, to me, like classic television. And I'm, and I'm actually glad that they're starting to stream it again because those those episodes are really enjoyable to watch. And it's such a, to me, a treasure trove of content that, that VH1 and Viacom are not really taking advantage of, especially now when everybody wants, to me, that's a that's a no-brainer Netflix situation. You know, just let them take that and it, you'll, I, to me, I think people would be shocked about how many people would tune in and watch the, 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 the rebroadcast of those episodes. Yeah, I just learned about them putting some on streaming, which I had no idea about. I don't own the old shows, and uh, it bummed me out. It bums me out the old stuff pre that metal show isn't right. out there, and it and it really bums me out that metal show isn't. But now, like you said, they're starting to put some on their site. I I uh, you know one of the things that we heard, and I could go, I could give you hours on just that metal show alone and what I went through to put it together and how it came together and the people involved and the origins of Stump the Trunk and all of that. But the thing the thing about it is that I used to hear a lot. We started to evolve and get a little wider, which is what I always wanted to do. I think people would be really surprised to learn that I always hated the name of the show. I never wanted it called that because I did not want metal in the name. I fought I it. We can do as much metal as we want, but don't put ourselves in that corner because immediately you're going to get people... The minute you have a rock guy on, that's not metal. Right. Which is why I opened every single episode by saying, you're home of all things hard rock and metal, 
because I tried to diffuse it right at the top of every show. Right. And as we went on, we had Paul Rogers on and yeah. Anna Nancy Wilson and all these people. And I wanted to get wider and um, kind of like what I do now on my on my current Sirius XM show, the, the whole sort of umbrella of rock. And oh, I've been on twice. You know what I mean? I'm a, I'm a blues rock guy, you know, right. but but. And, and that, I, you know, I loved the, the flexibility to do that, but I wanted to um, open it up and get it a little wider. And we were going in that direction in the later seasons of the show. And, and we were trying, but, you know, it was, a, it was a tremendous ride. I put so much into getting it on the air and keeping it on the air. And, you know, I, I, I it's probably the one thing that I heard from so many people that used to think I'd take offense to this, and it actually was a huge compliment, is they would come up to me and they'd say, you know what? We don't really even like that kind of music, but we like watching the show. Right. And that meant a lot because we were getting beyond our natural audience. And the other thing is, and this ties back to what we said earlier about having the, the stones to sort of speak your mind and speak honestly. Right. When we put that thing together, Don and Jim, my co-hosts, we were friends before we started that show. I met them because they were listeners of my radio show. There's the radio show again. Right. And they would come and hang out with me in the studio. So I, I brought them into the gig. And when we before we shot the first episode, we sat down and I said to those guys, I said, guys, we got to make a rule right now. We have to, for this to work and really get some traction, let the chips fall where they may, but we have to be willing to have that conversation on that set the same way we would if we're in this green room, we're at a bar, or on my radio show. Let's Absolutely. disagree. Let's, let's duke it out if we have to, but let's not just come on here and say every single thing. Like, And we all agree. And yeah. to that end, I think it served us really well. Again, there's going to be a couple people along the way that won't do the show, that don't like you because of it, or they heard, somebody heard that somebody heard. You got to roll with that. It's the only way to get anywhere. It's the only way to build a real audience and people to know you're sincere. I, I remember I did an, a review for Classic Rock Magazine in England, and it's one of my favorite magazines. They reached out to me to cover a Van Halen show in right. New York. Uh, Van Halen played Cafe Wa in New York for re a release party for their last record. Right. And the, the editor knew I was a fan of the magazine and said, hey, can you write a review for us? And well, I said, sure. I was like thrilled because I love the magazine. And the reason why I love the magazine is because they're so objective about things. Right. And he called, he emailed me the day of the review and he goes, hey, listen, we have a question for you and I hope you're okay with this. I said, what? He goes, we need to know that this review you, tur you turn in is going to be honestly your thoughts on what happened and you're not compromised in some way. Wow. You know, that you're willing to say what you felt this night was really like because, you know, you, we, most radio guys, I go, no, 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 you don't know me. It's all right. good. It's all good. So, yeah. And I respected that. So, again, it's that mentality of respecting, to build some respect by, by being able to be honest. Yeah. Speaking of rock music, what's your what's your thoughts on the current current state of rock music? Um, you know, I I kind of waffle between it's stagnant 
some of it's very creative and some of it seems like to be a bit of a steam powered car. Now I say that because I'm looking at a picture of myself on Skype and I'm looking myself in the mirror theoretically calling myself a steam powered car. Um, what do you think? Do you think it still holds the gravitas, the weight, the influence that, that, that it should? And obviously it does, it's not pop music like it used to be, but do you, do you, are you excited about where rock is going and hard rock metal? Yes. Uh, in the last couple of years, I, I'm incredibly excited about the bands that we have. Um, what I'm not so excited about is the viability of it getting over the hump and becoming as popular as ACDC or Van Halen or Kiss or what have you. I don't know, Joe, and I hope I'm wrong, but I really wonder if people today have enough passion and connection to music to make a band that meaningful in their life anymore. Right, right. When, when, you know, not to sound like the old 55-year-old man that I am, but when I grew up, you waited in line at the record store to get a record. You waited, the people who got the best tickets were the people who waited outside the longest, not who had the most money. You, mm -hmm. you know, owning, physically owning your record and holding it, looking at it, and it wasn't just, I'll click on that, eh, I'll click on that. It seems so like disposable now. So I don't know. You know, I have two kids that are 12 and 16 and, you know, I don't push them in any boxes of music. They kind of discover what they do, but I just don't sense the same passion for the, for music as it used to be there. But as far as rock and what's coming up, there are some newer bands that I absolutely love and I love what they're doing. Um, and they've certainly made great strides. I mean, I've been on Rival Sons almost since day one. Great band. I've been on the Struts, who are way more on the poppy side, almost since day one. And they're, they've both made great strides. Yeah. But there's so many others that I've, I've loved for a while and have done a few records that I'm kind of like, I just, it's just not connecting. And I don't know why that is. And I just, just wonder and question whether younger people... Uh, care enough about because think about it man i mean it, it, this makes me nuts as a lifelong supporter of music it's almost like artists now because the, the stream of music is totally diluted it doesn't matter if you have a record deal it doesn't it, it yeah. used to be if somebody handed you a, a, an album a tape a cd that had already you'd gone through a bunch of different gates just to get that yeah and if it now, said mercury or arista yeah, yeah. I mean, if it and I used to used to look at the labels like, wow, this is a Columbia release. This uh, these guys must be good because you weren't even getting an, an invite to the to a meeting if they didn't right. think you weren't a cut above. Tell me in one word or a few words. I'm going to name a few bands for you, and um, and just tell me, g give me a, a a short one or two or five word synopsis of what you think. Rush. First word that comes to mind is brilliant, um, ultimate geek band, right? <laughs> you know, chick repellent, <laughs> right, right. Y and T, underrated. First word that comes to mind. Menachetti just criminally underrated, and one of those amazing dual threat singer guitar player, equally amazing. Iron Maiden. I mean, probably in the top five greatest metal bands of all time. UFO. 
underrated with a capital U. Yes. <laughs> I mean, and 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 in my opinion, probably the some of the greatest melodic hard rock ever created. But you know, the thing with with UFO is most guitar heads just immediately the first word out of their mouth is Schenker, and I love Michael, but I think that's selling it short because it's about the songs, Phil's voice, and I love what they did with Paul Chapman. And I love some of the stuff they do with Vinnie Moore. So there's yeah. a much bigger picture for UFO than just people in the guitar communities like Shanker, Shanker. I get it, but the story's much bigger than that. And I think the songs are deeper than than just a just a shredding guitar player. You know what I mean? Michael's great. And he's got a great tone, and and but but you get you you get into those songs. They had a really good catalog of songs. Deep Purple. Mike Michael needs real quick on this. Michael needs a, the other great writer with him. Right. So Shanker and Mog was a formidable writing team. When you look at Michael's solo career, which is now forty years, it's kind of like this, given who his wingman is. So yes. to me, that says a lot. He needs a foil. A lot of people yes. need a, you know, yes. and and that's why you know I I always said that's why Glenn and I got on so well as writers because. We, he was the foil for me and I was the foil for him, you know, and, and it was like it was the first time I ever experienced that in my co career going, uh-huh, now I see how this used to work. You needed you needed somebody to go, hey, no, 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 try it this way. And then you go, oh, you know, um, Deep Purple. Um, I think in America, criminally underrated. Wow. I really do. I think you, people don't in America have any idea how Deep Purple is revered throughout Europe. You talk to a guy like Lars Ulrich, I mean, Deep Purple was more, more meaningful than Led Zeppelin to him. Uh, so I think, and, and I'm fascinated by all the eras of Deep Purple. And, and, and I actually toured with Deep Purple last year, flew with them and everything through Mexico, a tour of Mexico. So I got to know those guys, the current lineup with Steve Morrison I, it's amazing to me how good they still are in, now in their mid-70s. They're, they're just a phenomenal band. They're phenomenal. Um, this is a segue to my next topic. Do you think Tommy Boland should have went into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? One record with Purple. Right. So if you say, if you make that argument, then do you also put Joe Lynn Turner in with Deep Purple? Right. He did one record as the singer in Deep Purple. Right, so exactly. It's it's a it's a bit of a, a. I'd like to see Tommy Boland go in. I'd like to see there be some like sort of like career recognition thing, and right. have Tommy Boland go in for you know all of his work. Right. Because he should be way more recognized than he is, and there are people that love Tommy. But I don't know solely based off of the one record he did with Deep Purple if I could make that argument as a big oversight. Yeah, it's uh, you know I I kind of struggle with that because I'm a huge Tommy Bowen fan and and to me his moment of truth for me was the Billy Cobham Spectrum album. Like what and speaking of foil, I'm going he's a bluesy rock guitar player playing with a bunch of fusion guys and yeah. it made that record work. Talk to me about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Now, you've, you've said a lot about that. I've said a lot about that. There is a list of people that are not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame that you could, in theory, start a separate Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and have <laughs> a very impressive lineup yes. if you inducted these people, if you just went tangentially to the actual Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. What do you think 
And I've thought about this for, for years. What is the disconnect? Because it's just some of the obvious ones. Like for me, free not being in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is idiotic. All right now is one of the most played singles in rock and roll. Like what is what do you think the criteria is? And I and I've talked to some people that are on the board and I just I just shake my head and go, what's taking so long? Yeah, I mean, and then, well, you say free, then you say bad company. company. So there's, you know, Paul Rogers, the, the whole umbrella, if you will. I, I uh, look, I've tried to figure it out for a while. And I know the, some of the people in the nominating committee. There's many that are on it that I do not know. But the, the simple truth is there are still too many people on that committee that sort of snub their nose at popular rock and hard rock they just there's they're always going to go for that too cool for the room play and the the, it's just until that really gets changed it's always going to be an uphill battle and i've been as you mentioned a very outspoken critic of that on radio and tv for decades but here's what i'll say and i don't do that for effect like I don't stomp my feet on TV or scream about it on the radio because I want people, hey, did you hear Eddie go off? People love when I rant, which is fine. They think it's great broadcasting, fine. I mean, but I'm not doing that. That's not like a calculated thing. It's just coming from the heart. And, um, you know, it made me nuts for years about Kiss. It made me nuts for years about Deep Purple and Alice Cooper and these bands that have finally ultimately gotten in. Rush. I mean, crazy. But I know how that world thinks because it's the world that I've swam upstream and fought against my whole career. So I know the mentality and and I don't agree with it at all, but I know the mentality of it. And um, there there's. There's been improvement, though. As I tell my audience all the time, I don't rant and rave just for effect. You've also got to give credit when you see improvement. And because we now have Rush and Kiss and Cheap Trick and Deep Purple and Alice and Rush, I said Rush, these guys are finally in. And because even though they didn't make it, we finally saw Thin Lizzy and Motorhead and T-Rex. And and I think Pat Benatar is a huge snob. I mean, go on and on. Yeah. They're on a ballot finally. And what the crazy thing is, where I'll also give them some credit. I, I'm, I'm friends with Tom Morello. And Tom is on the nominating committee. He's in the room that nominates. Yeah. Tom's the reason why Kiss got in, because he fought so hard internally in that room. I mean, we talked about it while he was doing the fight. He was texting right. me about it. So the thing is, is that... Um, once they bring more rock-minded people in, yeah, that's great. But Tom talked to them about me being in the room. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, Tom, that's never going to fly. And he goes, <laughs> no, it didn't. But he goes, what I did agree to get them to do is make you be a, let you be a voter. Right. So about five, six years ago, I became a voter for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And that's not to be taken lightly because there's only a thousand voters and those thousand people determine who gets in from that ballot. I know there's a fan vote, but it really doesn't mean all that much. 
much. Yeah, I, I, I've been voting for, I think, about seven or eight years. And, you know, but, but it's been who's on the list is, is, is the, you know, I used to, and, and, I, and I, I hesitate to say this out loud in 2020, but I used to make the joke. And it's just a joke, people. Please, blabbermouth, I beg you, do not <laughs> clickbait me on this. I used to make the joke that Bruce Springsteen's cat had a better chance of getting in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame than Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Right. And, and please, again, I beg you not to clickbait me. But, but his but, manager runs the room. Right. So you're right. But, but you know, it, it, you know and one of the things that always got me, I was really good friends with Chris Squire from Yes. And the last time I saw Chris before he got ill and ultimately passed away, I had lunch with him. And we were just talking about music and his life and his career. And, and you know, like one of my favorite bands, one of my favorite bass players, I, I listened to the bass on Yes Records. I mean, I was like, yeah, I just love it. Right. And he just mentioned, he's like, man, before I go, you know, you know, I think I've had a good career. We've made some statements and, and made some great records. I go, duh. And he goes, yeah, it would be really nice if we were put into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And a year later, a year after he passes, Yes goes into the, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Same thing with, you know, Greg Lake, Keith Emerson. John Lord. John Lord. It, but I don't think the people in the room understand cognitively that that statue means something to those guys because they spent their whole life dedicated to rock and roll, dedicated to music, and it's a validation of their work by their peers. And Reese Winans has one, he's in my band, Glenn Hughes has a statue, and, and it, they're so proud of it. Matter of fact, when I, when, I, when I interviewed Glenn Hughes, he had the statue framed in the shot. He did it on purpose. <laughs> I go, I know you did it on purpose. To me, that, that's the one criminal thing about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is that they wait too long. And these guys are now in their mid-70s, 80s, you know, and it's like, you know, it, there's, a, there's a lot of people that need to be fast-tracked, in my opinion, because it does mean something to them. You know, it's well, like, hey, well, look at that. Yeah, I, I agree. And I'm all about seniority. I'm all about going with the, the guys that were there earlier and then working your way forward. Right. But here's the interesting thing, Joe. You're right. It does mean something to a lot of guys, but then you get a lot of them that are completely indifferent about it. Like for like the only time I went, I went to an induction twice. I went when Metallica got in, they actually paid for and, and brought a hundred people that they felt were super important to their success in history. I, I, I mean, put them up, flew them, everything, right. party the night before. And they, they brought me, which was insanely cool. Wow. And then when Kiss went in, um, you know, I'm close with Ace and Peter still, and I helped them through that process. And I feel that the Kiss fans got tremendously shortchanged with how they did that night and what Kiss refused to do and all that. But that's, that's another story. But I was there. I sat with Ace and Peter at the table. That was the only time I was actually at the table with the people going in, two of them at least. And... Um, there, you know, and and Paul and Gene were very, especially Paul were very outspoken about this. Like, it doesn't mean anything to me, and I don't need this validation. To the point they only said it on stage. A guy like Steve Miller was like just poo pooed the whole thing, but showed up. Or right. the Clash, Joe Strummer doesn't even show up. So there are those guys, and then there's guys that'll tell you the whole while they're not getting in that it's not a big deal, and then they'll get there that night and say, "Holy shit, this is a big deal." 
So I think yeah. a lot of them look at it differently, but I couldn't agree with you more that all the years Deep Purple was getting snubbed, I'm like, we're going to lose John Lord. We're going to, and, and then, and, and with Yes, I'm not the hugest Yes fan, but I, I would vote for Yes in two seconds if they showed up. See, that's the other thing about me too that people maybe don't realize is that I can separate, like when it comes to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, my personal tastes versus what just makes sense. Right. So, like, if Yes was on there, first ballot, done. I'd vote for him in two seconds because you have to be an idiot to not realize they basically created a genre. <laughs> they did. Yes, um, Genesis, Emerson, Lincoln, Palmer. Right. You know, I, I, I grew up at Jethro Tull, another huge snub, you know. Um, last topic. I have this theory, you know, like, like, what are your thoughts on post-pandemic? I know it's what everybody talks about. What do you think the heritage music scene looks like? How big a hit do you think that's going to take going forward? Because here, I'll, and I'll, I'll give you a little background. I, I had a lot of time these days to do think, some thinking. And, you know, a lot of people that are my friends that are in big heritage groups, you know, they're in their mid-70s and their late 60s, mid-70s plenty of money they've 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 made their statement they still like to tour but uh the 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 thing is a two to three year delay will put a 72 year old now he's a 75 year old 75 year old now he's almost 80 do you think you're going to see a lot of bands that we almost can set our watch to choose not to come back at all just go we're going to retire and sell the road cases or do you think it you know do you think it it, everybody's going to be in you know when we get the green light I think a lot of that is going to be determined by how quick we get the green light right. and what the green light means. Does the green right. light mean that we can all take a shot that's 100% guaranteed to not get us sick and to not let us get the virus? And right. I think if, if that is the scenario, which, you know, depending upon who you listen to, could be sooner than later, then, and we're talking about everybody going out starting early to mid next year, I think it's going to be largely unimpacted. Right. If you're talking about there being a lot of gray area, hey, is it safe? Hey, if I got the shot, does it mean I can't get it? Um, what if people in my audience didn't get the vaccine or refuse it? Uh, I think meet and greets, which are super lucrative to a lot of these guys, the VIPs, right. are going to be changed radically. So, yeah. uh, I, but I agree with you. I think that, like, I talked to Alice Cooper recently, and he's just like, I'm all good, man. When it's ready to go, we're ready to go. And he's in his 70s. Talk right. to Sammy Hagar about it. He's like, I'll go now if they tell me. And then you probably, you know, I talked to David Coverdale not too long ago, and he was sort sort of like, well, you know, I, I got to have a hernia operation. And you know, he was a guy that was toying with retirement like 10 years ago. Right. So does, and look, let's be honest, this, a lot of these guys, this is how they make their living. And if you are super financially sound and secure and, have enough dough for a few lifetimes you might be saying what's the point right. um some of these people that we think are these superstars and super wealthy actually aren't shockingly and right they need to still tour so yeah. they might be saying i gotta get back out there and i know scenarios on both fronts so i think that um i think it's going to be a case-by-case -case thing i am pretty optimistic from a fan standpoint that fans will want to come back and come back pretty pretty uh robustly when when this coast is clear. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think music, especially live music and an event, 
still mean something because they're trying it now like on a digital in a digital way and it's great you know and it's great to see acts out there doing live streams and whatever but it's not like you said about music and when you bought your first record it's not tangible a concert is tangible you know the fact that you're in the room you feel this kinetic energy coming off the stage and you feel the the pa that you i don't care how good a sound system you have in your house and how many cameras they use to shoot it it's just not it's just not the same as being in the room and and reacting to a joke that's set on stage and being part of this 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 live action theater and it's not going to be the same either to me if it's going to be severely reduced capacities there's yeah. people talking about like 2000 people spread out in a 12,000 cap arena you know, with rows apart from them. Look, I understand, and I, I've, I've helped out this organization called NEVA, National Independent Venue Association, and I'm doing everything I can because I feel I have so many friends in bands, I, and, and a lot of them live, you know, weekend warrior stuff and week to week, and they, they got to make a living. They're hurting, so I feel for them tremendously. And the people that work at the venues, the promoters, the stagehands, everyone. So I wanted to come back for them more than anything. Right. But I also feel that it's it's sort of a thing where, to me, going to a live show is so much about that communal thing of going with your buddies and that energy and the people around you. And 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 if it's going to be like everyone's in pods you know, or these bubbles right. and you can't hear the guy like it's just I, I, I'd rather. And it's easy for me to say because I I don't make my living as a musician. Although, like I said, I make a lot of my living hosting shows and being out there with musicians, so I'm taking a lot of hits. Right. But I'd, I'd rather say, you know, I'd much rather see a show when I can see a show packed into a club or a theater, which is my favorite thing, than in some with all these crazy restrictions. Yeah, the it's you know you got to do it the right way because you know it's you know I play theaters and you know and there's there's a natural distance you know there's seats are not you know. Right. You know, I think the big club shows are going to suffer because the big clubs, they, you know, you get 2000 people in a, in a, in, you know, the house of blues there it's, that's GA that's standing room only. And you're like, I, I, I wouldn't do that at any time, you know, just because you're like, man, these people are super close to you, you know, and we may see the end of GA. We may not see GA for a long time as far right. as it, even they may, even in open floors, they may pour seats down. So who knows? Or what those little stand here spots like at the right. at the drugstore, Eddie. I cannot thank you enough for 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 not only being on here, um, but also your support and friendship over these years. I mean, you, I think you're you're truly a national treasure in my book because you know we all we all love what you do and and the fact that you go out of your way to support music of any genre, including you know this kid from upstate New York. I I really appreciate it. So thank you thank you for being on here. Joe, it means a lot coming from you. It really does. And I really appreciate you having me on sincerely. And you know, I, I'm trying to think before we did this the first time we met, and it was probably the first BCC record, but right. I was aware of the I was aware of you back all the way. I've talked to you about this before, that was that bloodline record back right. in the day. But I you know, I think I first got to know you because I was of course friends with Glenn and everything. And uh, 
you know, I, I love what you've done with your career. I think it's brilliant what you do, and uh, I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. I remember you tweeted one time. Um, you you found a uh, it was a it was a broadcast of the High Voltage Festival, and we did this bit where we went into some Zeppelin by the end. It was our encore song, but it was in the festival. And you're like, man, I didn't realize Bonamassa rocks so hard. And they're like, and all of a sudden, I got all these new followers, all these heavy, you know, heavy <laughs> music guys. I'm like, hey, great, you know. Hey, thank you so much, man. We thank love you, Joe. Appreciate you having me. Be well. This has been live from Nerdville, from Nashville, Tennessee. Stay tuned for another exciting episode next week. Same time, same place. Thank you for watching.